Welcome back to The Few Show, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm the co-founder of Xfusion.io and the co-host of The Few Show. I'm excited to be joined today by my guest, Fadal Altarzi. Fadal is the founder and CEO of Nextford University. He and his team are on a mission to solve the world's biggest challenge, education, by building a next-generation university that will positively impact millions of lives around the world. Fadal has 20 years of experience in building digital media and tech startups. So welcome, Fadal, and I, I want to jump right into this. So I understand that you've been an entrepreneur since 18. Is that fair to say? Hi, Jim. Uh, it is fair. <laughs> okay. So, so tell me, like, we're going to get into Nextford, and we'll probably talk a, a lot about that. But what was your first venture into entrepreneurship? My first venture was a .com. It was a website uh, back in Egypt where I grew up. So it was a website designed for sort of uh, an Egyptian version of Expedia is the way, simplest way to explain it, to, to think of it. So Egypt relies heavily on tourism. So it was a website for people to be able to check out, you know, hotels, uh, airlines, uh, where to go, and uh, basically get the accurate information without being haggled on the streets. Wow. So my first business was lawn care. So <laughs> like a fairly common story, but I'm rather surprised that you got your start online then, right from the beginning. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That gives you more and more time for compounding to take effect as you kind of progress in your career. Right. Well, that's fine. So let's jump right into to Nextford. Tell me a little bit more about what it is and the problem that you guys are solving. So the problem we're solving predominantly is uh, is a belief that my co-founder and I have shared sort of from day one that you know lack of education is the root cause of most, if not all, world challenges. Um, you know, we've just shared this belief from a social perspective. Like we would never. I mean, I, I had never built anything in the education sector before, but I had actually experienced challenges of higher ed from an employer perspective. So as an entrepreneur, you know, you're, you're hiring, you tend to hire a lot of fresh grads. And typically if you're building, you know, a tech startup, uh, you're typically hiring folks that haven't really done what they're going to be doing uh, before. So you're having to train them from scratch. I was shocked, however, at, you know, the level of training that's required. So like really basic skills people weren't, you know, getting in school, basics from like Excel skills, the PowerPoint, uh, you know, even basic digital marketing skills, like you'd hire marketing grads that had never done any ads on Facebook, for instance. So mm -hmm. you start, you know, asking what are you actually learning. Um, I remember interviewing, you know, a developer back uh, years back that was learning Visual Basic. And this was like 2016, maybe 2017. Um, so uh, the shocks were sort of, you know, repetitive shock after shock. So as we started formally, you know, researching and understanding what's happening in the sector, um, we were just shocked by the amount of, you know, student debt in the U.S., um, by, you know, the even even enrollment rates. Like, many people don't know this, but something like only about a third of Americans actually have a college degree in 2021. So it's, mm. you know, quite shocking when you're even thinking of that. Uh, college debt's approaching, what, maybe $2 trillion maybe? Um, you know, the average American university is affordable to less than 1% of the world. Um you know, Africa alone is going to face a shortage of about 100 million university seats a year uh, over the coming five years, meaning that, you know, th there's a massive supply and demand uh, mismatch. Uh, markets like India, something like a third of faculty positions are vacant across universities in India. So the numbers just don't make sense. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, uh, how sustainable is this? And, and more importantly, what's the social impact? Uh, yeah. So unlike other industries where, you know, there could be a poor customer service issue or an overpriced issue, you sort of skip like, you know, food delivery app. I don't know if food doesn't come fast enough, you'll be fine. 
<laughs> but uh, but ultimately the impact a lack of education has on the world we think is super profound. So that was the impetus behind starting Nextwave. Uh, like I told you offline, I'm super excited to dive into this. I think this is a major problem that needs solving and it's exciting that you and your team are working on this. It sounds to me like relevance is an issue. And just based on my own experience, I, I have $83,000 in student debt, which like that's cringeworthy. And mainly because it was for a bachelor's degree in applied social sciences, which I don't use at all now. And this is so dumb, but at the time I, I earned that degree. I was a detective in law enforcement and I, this is so stupid, but I earned it. So I would get an extra $1,500 a year in salary. Wow. So okay. stupid, but I don't use it at all now. And then, so as I got into online business in something like 2014, I signed up for an MBA program and I went in person and, and was, was enjoying it. Super expensive in Colorado. And then I took a class in online marketing and what we were learning was taught by a teacher who had never actually done online marketing and was irrelevant to what I was currently practicing in my own business. It was outdated. And at that moment I stopped and of course incurred more debt, but like I stopped because like there was a gap in relevance of what I was learning versus actual application. And then further, now I don't know if this experience is universal, but in my experience, when I was, I was, I was hired as a manager of this online business. And then I became a, a part partner, but I literally did not include my MBA work because it was a deterrent for this person, this, this employer, because of the lack of relevance. Right. You're, Is that you're, part of what you're... you're spot on, John, Jim. I mean, when we pitched investors from day one, they asked us, you know, what's the problem you're solving? We said, you know, that we're solving two huge problems, relevance, number one, and affordability is number two. Uh, so the gap between what employers are looking for and what universities are teaching has only been widening over the past years. There's this yeah. massive gap. And I think I remember before we even came up with the, with the, with the name Nextford, we surveyed thousands of uh, students all across the world. And we and then we surveyed administrators and faculty. It was a really interesting survey we did. So we asked faculty and administrative folks across universities who said, you know, what's the reason for your existence as a university? Like, what's your number one objective as a university? And then we asked students the same question. So, you know, what's the number one reason you go to university? And that showed us what I call the disconnect between, and I know in the industry, they don't really like when I use these terms, but the disconnect between the buyer and the seller. And it's such a unique disconnect, right? Because the buyer, in this case, being the, the learner, the students going to college, and their number one reason was to get a job or advance in their career. Like hands yeah. down, it was like 80% of them said that. But only like 20% of faculty and administrators cited anywhere remotely close to preparing people for jobs. It was always sort of more theoretical, long-term stuff, you know, providing people with foundations for life or, you know, providing them, you know, which is, which is, which has value. Don't get me wrong. Like we're not a vocational school. And I think it boils down to this happy medium. It needs to be a medium. Universities need to teach people how to learn. I think predominantly that's the most important thing you can get from university, but that needs to be balanced with skills that can apply immediately. You know, if I'm only, if I'm, if I'm going to school for four years to learn how to learn, and I'm incurring, you know, hundred or $150,000 in cost to do that. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I still need to learn the skills. So right. it's not, it doesn't really take four years, you know, to, to learn how to learn. And then I have to go get say professional certifications to become a digital marketer. If it was, you know, I don't know, a $3,000 six month investment to learn how to learn. Okay. That's fine. Uh, yeah. But it, when you're getting degree, I think that today it's just skewed too much to the theoretical side. So we try to definitely balance. And I think there needs to be this, like I said, this medium. There are soft skills, whether it's critical thinking or communication mm -hmm. skills and so forth, which are the ones that employers value the most. 
but these need to be balanced again or matched with practical skills, whether it's marketing or, or otherwise, and the and learning how to learn. That makes sense. I, I want to play devil's advocate and push you a little bit. Sure. Uh, so I think some naysayers may say, what about credibility? Yes. You know, what about uh, reputation, even accreditation, et cetera? Now, my experience, as I just shared, has been like, well, for our company, we have 41 team members on our staff. A good number of them have degrees. I couldn't care less. I want to know if they can do the job that we're asking them to do or if they're at a point where we can, you know, complete that training to where they can do it. So if they have the requisite skills and they can prove that they have that, I don't care where they learned it, you know. But but I don't know if I'm in the minority and if there's still – I know in days past there was this idea, like, you need to graduate from an accredited school and even better if, like, you know, you're hiring in Denver, I'd like you to go to a Colorado school because that's my alma mater, I know it or whatever. Yeah. So are you, how are you, uh, how's that experience going for you all? It's, it's, it's definitely uh, an issue. So building a brand from scratch is difficult, let alone in higher ed specifically. It's an industry where people aren't used to seeing startups. Like the concept of a startup university is a bit of an oxymoron. I mean, you don't really hear it all the time, right? So it takes time to build a brand. Uh, having said that, the way we think about it is there's a number of, of factors into play. The first is... Um, if you actually look outside of the top university brands, the playing field is pretty much leveled across the board. So, you know, outside, say there's like, what, 2,000 schools, for instance, in the U.S., outside the top 100, you know, people wouldn't really have heard of the vast majority of the rest. I could probably name, you know, five universities right now, each of them billing two, three hundred million million a year that you'll never, never have heard of. Mm. So it, it, while it takes time to build a brand, ultimately we think that the consumers or demographic we're going after is one that's going to really leapfrog this sort of traditional mindset and understand that status quo isn't serving needs. People understand that today. It's just how willing am I to actually go with an alternative model given I understand status quo isn't working. And once enough employers start you know, hiring our graduates or partnering with us, once enough learners you know, have gone through the program and you know, express their satisfaction and actually achieve you know, positive outcomes in life, uh, I think there's going to be a bit of a, you know, a tipping point where the new brand is not going to be a deterrent as much as it's actually going to be a catalyst to us. Because ideally, people want the best of both worlds. Like the ideal yeah. scenario is to actually be able to go to a college or university, get a degree, get an accredited degree, but also get a modern and affordable one. There's no one that would disagree to that, right? In the For past, sure. people would have to... To, to choose between the two. I either sort of go to a MOOC maybe and get a bunch of, you know, micro-credentials online, but then from an employer perspective and even from a personal perspective, I don't really know what the value of that is. Or I have to pick the traditional university and learn theory and incur debt. So what we're saying is you should no longer have to make that, you know, trade-off. You can get the best of both worlds. We are accredited and we're going through, we're applying for, you know, additional accreditations today you know, in the U.S. Uh, so ultimately, you know, there will come a point where people will be able to evaluate us from a formal perspective, from a regulatory perspective, head to head with traditional folks that have existed for, you know, 50 years and yet not have to suffer the consequences as of, of, of universities that have existed for, you know, 50 or more years. Sure. Is it inappropriate to compare what you guys are doing to coding boot camps, for example? I mean, th those... In my observation, there's been a big rise in in those sort of um, yeah 
you know, institutions or, or whatever. And I feel like that anecdotally, a lot of employers are hiring from them and are quite pleased because they have the requisite skill set. So what are your thoughts on that? So I think there are some parallels. The differences would be primarily, you know, coding bootcamp, I think, is preparing you for a coding career, right? Um, now, there are different perspectives on the future of coding careers, right? There, there's, a th there's a theory that one might, you know, needs to respect that it's likely that the coding skills you're going to build today uh, are not going to be super valuable, say, two years from now. Uh, mm -hmm. So what do you do at that point? If you don't have a foundation that allows you to pivot or to learn, you know, something else, whether it's coding or something else, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Um, so that's one perspective. Not to say that, you know, coding isn't a great career, you know, for the coming few years. Uh, so that's one perspective. The other perspective, I think, in, in coding boot camps is, I think what, what really um, helped um, increase in popularity was the income sharing agreement structures. So, so the ISAs basically... I respect ISA as an alternative to the traditional tuition model. So, so I, I have a lot of respect for the, you know, uh, the model. Where I have an issue is in the concept of deferring an overpriced tuition structure. So let me explain what that means. So I think we need to come to terms with what is the actual value of what we are teaching people and assign a dollar value to that figure and find a way to deliver it at that actual value rather than find a way to defer the payment or come up with a creative financial engineering structure to charge three times that price uh, over a number of years. Like I'd much rather pay 2K today than 10K over five years, for example, yeah. right? So I think that's sure. sort of the issue with ISAs and with all sorts of other alternative. It almost reminds me of more mortgage-backed securities back in the day, right? Like why are we trying to find creative ways to pay more than the real value? Let's just pay the actual value and call it a day and you go your way, I go my way. I agree. Yeah, that's good feedback. I, I want to read you a quote from a, a TechCrunch article that you all were featured in in the summer of this year. Uh, it says, quote, after, after offering degrees, Nexford puts on its placement hat. Nexford puts on its placement hat by fixing its graduates with partner employers. There's a big shortage of jobs in Nigeria. And despite the high unemployment, it's actually difficult to find extremely qualified entry-level graduates. So Nexford has carried out several partnerships where employers sponsor their employees or soon-to-be employees for upskilling and rescaling purposes. So tell me more about that, the sort of the, the partnerships that you're forging with organizations. Sure. To... So so a great example is going to be, you know, one of our most recent partnerships with a bank called Sterling Bank in Nigeria, one of the biggest banks there. So so Sterling has, as with many other you know, traditional institutions, they'll have two challenges. You'll have one in, in, in that, you know, upskilling and reskilling your own employees when it comes to things like, say, digital transformation or cybersecurity or product management skills. You know, there's a huge shortage of these skill sets across traditional organizations. Um, so they'll partner with us, identify where they have skill gaps, and then, you know, we'll look at our curriculum and say, okay, what within our curriculum can we, can we match them with to fill those gaps? So that's one area of upskilling and reskilling. The other area which you know, I find you know quite exciting is our learn to earn program. So um, you could draw parallels again from the ISA. So learn to earn programs where we go to an employer and say, you know, do you have a shortage in hiring entry level qualified talent? So as an employer, you know, most employers are going through more traditional recruitment channels where they only actually get to know the applicant at point of application. Now there are a number of drawbacks to that approach. So what we're saying is through the Learn to Earn program, the employer can identify what are the skills that they value the most 
in entry-level candidates. So I identify, say, five particular skills. I could choose a specific specialization within our bachelor program or a set of courses or certificates, and we match those academic programs to the qualifications and the skills the employer is looking for. So as an employer, I now know that graduates of Nexford are going to be specifically meeting the, the, not the criteria even, but they're going to have the skills that I'm looking for, whether it's in a year or two or three or four. And more importantly, I'm going to be able to actually monitor the progress of those learners over a certain period of time and potentially even offer them part-time positions while they're learning. So the employer is actually sort of building a relationship, say, for at least six months, you know, prior to hiring. For them. So you have their academic, you know, performance, but you also have sort of the, the virtual internships or the, or the work that they've been doing for you on a part-time basis for six months. So you really are able to make a much more informed decision on who am I going to hire. So think of them as scholarship programs that are pipeline programs as well. And the interesting thing is because our tuition is so affordable, so on average, say, our bachelor degree, if we're talking about a market like Nigeria, is going to cost less than $2,000 a year. Um, so it's about it's about $1,800 a year. So that's pretty much equivalent to the placement fee you're going to pay an agency anyway to find you someone. And that's someone just from scratch. You know nothing about them. So compare that in value versus I've educated that person. I've put them in a scholarship program. They've now done work that's relevant to what I'm looking for. And I have so much to analyze from day one. And they're really ready to hit the job from day one. I'm not going to have to put them through a training program. Uh, so that's basically what we're doing with employers through the, the Learn to Earn program. That's fantastic. I love the, the built-in vetting as well. Uh, and this is probably a bit selfish, but I, this is actually quite useful for our organization or could be. We So we provide outsourced customer support and back office support. And yeah. we hire something like 0.5% of all the applicants that come in. And it's tedious for us because – you know, when we first bring on a client, there's a high risk in, like, we have to make a strong first impression. That's critically important. And we're hiring somebody that has not worked for us yet, and we, we do the best we can to vet them, but then we're putting them on the front line, and they may or may not perform. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of a vetting process being built in. And another thing we've considered, we predominantly hire out of the Philippines and, and Nairobi, Kenya, or just generally oh, wow. in Kenya. So that's our, our areas of, of focus. And one of the things that I would love to do, and I've talked to our Kenyan staff about this, is create a, like, kind of a quasi internship program, but like, for example, in, in uh, just outside of Nairobi, there's one of the largest slums in the world called Kibera. Mm -hmm. And actually the English competency is quite good. What they're missing is the baseline skills that would be required to work remotely. Yeah. So we've talked about creating an educational program to upskill them all the while to your point, maybe they would work part-time exactly. uh, doing something internally for us, but then we, we, we have the vetting process. So, I'm curious though, like from our perspective, and this may be, may be true or not for other employers, but timing is relevant. I wouldn't want to wait. It would be more difficult for us to wait 18 months to two years. I suppose that that's workable if we plan for that. But it sounds like there's more accelerated options, like almost like a, a job preparation certificate. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there you could just take a course, you know, for say eight weeks, you know, uh, you could uh, take multiple courses in parallel. Uh, you're right. I think the, the talent pipeline sort of solutions are going to be probably for large organizations that have, you know, uh, a history of recruitment. So they know on average we hire, you know, 100 entry level positions every year out of our 5,000, you know, person workforce. Mm -hmm. So they partner with us to be the provider of that 100 for the coming years. Uh, 
but uh, but mm. on a on a on a, a on a shorter basis, say for startups or SMEs, um, yeah, there'd be you know much shorter courses people are looking for, and um, and then from a from a B two C perspective, so to your point of you know say the Philippines or other markets, and Philippines knows one of our bigger markets. Uh, we have this view that the world's moving towards this virtual talent grid. So our approach to employability isn't just to match folks with employers specifically, because the idea is really what we want to do is enable economic mobility or social and economic mobility. So if I can get you on the grid, then we've achieved a really positive outcome. So we really think of it as literally sort of a grid. So that grid is a grid of talent all across the world. And there are employers on the grid and there are, you know, employees on the grid. There are contractors, there are freelancers, a whole bunch of people on that grid. So we think the future of employability in itself is going to change as well. Even if you were to think about it from your company's perspective, if you could today, you know, tap into talent, tap in and out of it as you need in a sort of more fluid way, you could probably increase your efficiency significantly and even your, your productivity as well. So in a market like, you know, whether it's the Philippines or in Kenya, where you have, you know, great English speakers, uh, you have young populations, contrary to the U.S., there's actually going to be an aging population over the coming 10 years. The only solution, I think, for companies in the U.S. is actually going to be to tap into markets like Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia for future talent. And that talent doesn't necessarily have to be the form in uh, in the form of employment. So you look at, you know, platforms like Upwork and others, you know, yes. the reason these folks are growing is because there's just a need for more and more talent across the world. We want to get people on that grid to be able to access opportunities regardless of their location. Absolutely. And and we've seen, I'm sure you have too, an acceleration thanks to COVID. There's been more yes. and more people that by force initially, companies that went remote, and that's sort of like the gateway, I guess, for them to consider working with people from other countries. Exactly. And the, the talent level that's available in other countries is incredible. But there's still, I know I was talking to, to Martin, one of our team leaders, and he's based in Nairobi. And he was saying there's such a huge gap there. Like locally, it's so difficult for people to find jobs. I mean, their, their local economy is pretty bad. Like the unemployment is extremely high. And the problem is there's a skill gap between, you know, it's, it's kind of been normalized to us because obviously all of our staff are of that skill level, but he said that actually they stand apart from the average and there's a major problem in upskilling uh, people in that area. And, and internet infrastructure is improving significantly. And then at the same time, we have more and more employers willing to hire remote. I think that it's, I think that what you're providing is the missing component that's needed to get them in a place where they can be marketable to employers or just as a freelancer themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope so. And I think, yeah, COVID, like you said, sort of has accelerated, you know, remote work, uh, you know, employers are starting to realize, well, if everyone's remote anyway, if you're in Colorado and, you know, you have an employee in, you know, in D.C. or in Texas or in California, might as well just have someone in Mexico as well. Uh, so, so I think that's been, you know, amazing, really, in terms of enabling mobility across the world. Um, and to your point on, you know, freelancers, there's obviously a, a role for you know MOOCs and smaller credentials across the board, and we we view ourselves as part of that ecosystem. But I'm starting to see that the smaller credentials are almost fueling the demand for formal credentialing, unlike what people thought. So you'd see all these Instagram posts that Google no longer requires a bachelor degree, and neither, neither does Apple, and so forth. I think people sort of misconstrued that. Uh, 
it's not that they don't value a bachelor degree, but there's a disconnect between which ones they value and the pricing you know, it, it entails and the salaries they have to pay when, when yeah. people are graduating with 100K in debt. But, but I assure you, you know, whether it's Google or Apple or anyone else, if they could get college degrees, college graduates, you know, with relevant skills, that's, you know, the best of both worlds, because no one wants to, you know, hire people and have to train them for six months before they can derive value from them. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so anyway, to, to the smaller credential point earlier, there's just been, you know, millions and millions of these, you know, alternative credentials that have emerged over the past few years. And now I think the challenge employers are seeing is how do we evaluate what is the value of this, whether it's a badge or a certificate or a nano degree, it's really unclear what it means. So people are starting to go back to an extent to a college degree. At least I know sort of what is the baseline of what does a college degree actually mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a network of graduates that are, are currently looking for positions that you kind of assist in placement for them? We do, yeah. We 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 have we started in Feb of 2019, uh, so we do have MBA uh, grads specifically, um, okay. and we are just really designing. I have to say, in the early stages of designing our career services element or, mm -hmm. or offering, we've partnered with a number of companies across the world. There's one called Localize, uh, based here in DC as well. So we partner with them, you know, to provide virtual. Uh, job placement fairs and uh, you know they have regular weekly events with employers across the world um, so we partner with existing platforms in addition to creating our own partnerships with employers to feed them with with talent yeah that makes sense I, I want to read a quote to you that's on your website uh, it's attributed to Dell and it says 85 percent of jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't yet been invented mm -hmm. that's a profound statement and I I strongly agree. And it's funny, I was talking to my, I have five kids total and, and two of yeah. my girls are 14 and they're in high school, just starting high school. And we had an interesting conversation the other day about the current jobs that exist now yeah. were not even an option when I was their age, right. which honestly, it was not that long ago, you know, but yeah. honestly, that's even true. Like 10 years ago, that's true. true. So how do you prepare for such a thing when we don't even know, I think we have a hint, I guess, at the direction things are going. But how do you prepare as a company to address that situation? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Jim, and it's obviously something we, we, we think about all the time. And going back to my earlier feedback on sort of vocational skills or, or purely skills-based versus uh, soft skills-based, uh, this is where the balance, I think, comes in. So we know there are certain skills that are, gonna, that are today in high demand that are going to remain in high demand. So you think about things like communication skills, collaboration skills, critical thinking, strategic thinking, creativity, you know. So these are skills that are definitely, you know, in high demand today. Like across most research, you'll see that, you know, the top skills employers value are going to come out of that list of five skills. Um, so these are going to remain in, in high demand. The, the approach we try to take is what we call the interdisciplinary approach. So if we're teaching digital marketing, say, you know, 50% of the course needs to focus on, you know, applying digital marketing today. Like, you know, this is how you can advertise on Google, or Facebook and so forth. And then the other 50% needs to be focused on how you're going to select the platform and what's the thought process you should go through when you're thinking about, you know, identifying your target audience and their personas and, and the concept of targeting and the concept of bidding and setting your budgets and how to measure return on that advertising investment and so forth. So these principles are going to remain. Uh, now, you could say that, yeah, AI is going to replace, for instance, some of that where it's going to target for you. 
Well, even if it does, you're still going to need to have the ability to uh, to analyze which of your target audience groups is you know performing better than the other, and then tailor maybe your product offering for that. So that's why we think about it in an interdisciplinary way, where you're applying, say, creativity or analytical skills or strategic thinking skills to a digital marketing context. So mm -hmm. that's where I think we win over some of the more targeted courses where you're just taking a digital marketing course uh, to learn how to use, say, Facebook. You know, if there isn't Facebook, you know, in, in a couple of years, you're left not really understanding. So I think finance is a great example as well. Like, we'll teach people how to understand, you know, the return on their ad spend from an operational perspective. Is it actually driving sales or not, you know, attribution issues? So it's really about that interdisciplinary skill set, which is always going to be, I think, in high demand. Having said that, we obviously update our curriculum, you know, much more regularly than traditional universities. So because it's completely online and because, you know, we're really a tech-enabled you know, institution, we, we, we continuously look at ways to actually build what we call a dynamic curriculum. So we're not going to update it every five years, right? You know, we're going to update on a much, much shorter uh, interval. You know, could it be a, a, a different revenue channel for you or a potential add-on revenue channel for you all to um, sort of update? Let's say you have a student that graduates this year, maybe in one year from now or two years, whatever time frame makes sense, they come back for sort of a refresher, you know, maybe an update yeah. within their industry. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, everyone's talking about lifelong learning these days. And and we do attempt to, to do that in multiple ways, including our stackable credentials model. So, so you'll have many students who will come in for smaller credentials. So it could be just a course or a certificate. So what we've done is we've stacked all of our credentials within within a larger sort of format, if you will. So if you think of it sort of as a pyramid, you know, at the base of a pyramid, you know, you may have a course and then a certificate and then a degree. Um, so an example would be within our bachelor program, you could take two courses. Those two courses will constitute uh, half a certificate. So once you're done with these courses, you'll get an email will tell you, by the way, you've completed 50% of the certificate as well. Nice. So people might come in and take that. And then that folds into you get an associate degree by default. Like when you're enrolled in a bachelor program, you'll get course badges, you'll get certificates, you'll get an associate degree, and then you'll get the bachelor program all at no additional cost. So, so yes, I mean, people will, will, will be able to continuously come and tap into additional learning needs as they have them. That's great. I want to shift gears here and talk about you a little bit, a little bit more. <laughs> That's much less uh, interesting. Yeah, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, so what, three years ago or so, Raina Brightman gave you a referral on LinkedIn and she said, quote, he's a sharp brain, likes to throw a few curveballs to test the rigor <laughs> of things, welcomes being challenged when it makes, uh, when it's to make the work the best it can be. And most importantly, can have fun in the process. So I'm curious, like what, what are the curveballs that she's talking about with your, your style there? So I don't remember that specific instant, but I have a tendency to, you know, suggest uh, things that may be very different from the path of thinking that's being taken. So let's say we're thinking about, you know, uh, I don't know, a solution to a challenge. I'll throw mm -hmm. a curveball and is this even the challenge we should be thinking about in the first place? Uh, or could there be a higher priority challenge that we should all be focused on? So everyone will be so focused, you know, for hours thinking about option A, B, and C, and we're not able to solve the problem. But I, I just like to, you know, think of things from different perspectives and pose all the different possibilities. Uh, 
even the you know uh, the unpopular ones. And so I think that's often construed to be a curveball or an example of a curveball I'll throw in. Um, I'm not afraid to, to really explore any option, I think is, is, is the best way to, to, to think about it. Um, and I think often in doing so, uh, you, may resort, you may resort to the first option you were thinking about in the first place, but you, 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 you do so uh, maybe with, with a higher level of confidence uh, and, and often result. Is another way of saying that kind of asking the question if the ladder is even leaning against the correct building? Right? Yeah, I guess that's, that's a great way to think about it. How, so how do you, I, I know for me, I get easily fixated and I, I sometimes have a hard time seeing the forest for the trees. My, my angle is sort of not wide enough. And I don't know if that's a common experience. I think it probably is, but and interestingly, in, in my past, I worked for a private equity firm. We acquired multiple SaaS assets, and I would review the prospectus. Mm -hmm. And regardless of my expertise in that specific niche, I could usually add some sort of value by looking at the business from a 30,000-foot perspective. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like in most cases, the founder was just right here. Exactly. And like, so how do, you, how do you do this? Like, how do you open your, your view up? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's really difficult when you're so entrenched in operations and deadlines and budgets and, you know, the, the last thing you want is someone coming and giving you some hypothetical scenario to, you know, it's sort of aggravating, actually, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I, I have to say, like, uh, I rely on partners for that to a large extent. You know, several of our of our investors uh, are really good at that. Um, my co-founder as well, though he's not actively involved in running the business. Let's say we'll speak whatever, let's say if we, if we do like a monthly review session, whether formally or informally, he'll always, you know, challenge me. So I guess the short answer is you need to expose yourself to those who will complement your weaknesses. Um, I found that to be uh, maybe the lazy solution to fixing my own weaknesses, uh, exposing myself to those who don't have the weaknesses. I don't even know that it's appropriate to say it's a lazy solution. Because like, there's an argu argument to be made that it's not worth your effort to focus on your weaknesses or improving those versus doubling down on your strengths. Yeah. Especially when you're at a stage where you have the privilege of putting the right person in the right seat exactly. at your startup. And I know that is a privilege and we're like, we're just on the edge of that now. And like, it gets me excited because like, you know, in the beginning, I feel like as a founder or a team of founders, you have to kind of do everything, including the stuff you're yeah. not great at. You're right. A hundred percent. I think it's all about timing, right? You know, whether you follow, I mean, the U.S. Army, you know, says reinforced success, right? Uh, when, you, when you read, you know, blitzscaling, again, like, it's, it's, it's really about the stage of the business. Um, I think at an early stage, like you said, if the whole team is, you know, five, ten people, you don't have the luxury of saying, ah, oh, you know, I have these weaknesses, let me, let me have someone else fill them. But I think as the business grows, like you said, there's just an opportunity cost. You could say, you know, I'm going to take three to six months to, to, to work on myself to address this particular issue. Or, you know, so-and-so just does it much better than I do. Uh, so I think it just starts with identifying that it is a weakness. Uh, if you can't see that in the, in the first place, uh, I think that's, that's where the bigger risk is. And again, I think surrounding yourself by folks who, who poke at things and also aren't involved as operationally as you are, they tend to mm -hmm. see things that you didn't see. And these may not be weaknesses, by the way. Many times, often, you know, they're actually opportunities that you weren't looking at. Yeah. <laughs> you know, strength is so relevant too. It's like, uh, 
So until very recently, well, I, I think it's fair to say we're still in the transition where I'm stepping out of operations more into like the sales sort of yeah. relationship side of the business. And I'm a pretty, like, I'm pretty high in trait conscientiousness, yeah. attention to detail. And I thought I was fairly good at that. And then we have this, this uh, lady in our team named Joanne, and she has the attention to detail, like, <laughs> can't even imagine. I'm like, she's way better at this than me. It's like, what I thought was my strength Maybe it was compared to some, but it's like she's way higher. In the yeah. Like to give you an example, she sent us a message. She go, This is like last week, and she goes, "Hey guys, to, to David, I my, my co-founder, right? Hey guys, want to remind you that in one hour from now in Kenya is Jeff's one-year anniversary. If you want to wish him well, I'm like, <laughs> and she's in the Philippines. So like she's calculating Incredible. what time it is in the U.S. to the to. And she's like, Incredible. I was like loosely aware that Jeff's anniversary. What was did you say her name like, was? Joanne. Let me just Google Joanne Philippines. <laughs> Sounds like a catch. <laughs> yeah, we're going to delete this. <laughs> no, yeah. but it's like, I, it was humbling to me, and I felt so proud of her. And this is just one story. Like, we have multiple people on our team that have stepped up, and it's like, this is amazing. Like, I, it's just great to, honestly, to have the it, fortune of working with people like that. Honestly, Jim, you're right 100%. Like, my, my biggest... Uh, regret always in every startup, including Nextbird, was just not prioritizing HR sufficiently from day one. I think, you know, it is the number one sort of mislooked, undervalued area, probably of any startup that I've seen. Like, if you build the right team and you really invest in finding the right folks and then nurturing the right team, there's nothing that's just more empowering. There's nothing, uh, you know, that I could say, you know, would impact the success of your business more than that. And, you know, often as founders, we're just so, uh, you know, busy and, uh, and, and just focused on execution that we tend to do a lot ourselves for the first few years more than we should. Um, yeah. But also focus on surrounding yourselves with folks that can execute on your vision. But then years later, you find that they don't have their own vision or their own view of how things should be built. And therefore you're left, you know, with an organization that doesn't really move unless you push it. Um, so, 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 so to your point, a hundred percent, I'd say, you know, focusing on getting the right people is just by far the most valuable thing any, any, any entrepreneur can, can do. I think once we cross like, 20 people, 30 people, many people will start telling me, you know, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't be interviewing everyone. And then I, I tell myself, I think I should actually still interview everyone until we're over a hundred. Like right now we're probably about 70 people. Uh, okay. And I really don't think, you know, founders should stop interviewing and be, you know, so involved with hiring until they're really comfortable that the culture is really aligned internally. You know, everyone understands what are the values you're looking for and so forth. Because uh, again, like in, in our businesses, at least, right? They're, they're knowledge businesses. It mm -hmm. all boils down to the team you have. Yeah, yes. I, I'm constantly trying to balance my, my fear of letting go too soon versus yeah. my fear of letting go too late. Yeah. That's hard, for me at least, to balance that. Because it's a shame to carry on too long and not let go of something sooner but yet there's a risk in doing that too soon as well, Agreed. obviously. It's a constant dilemma I think most founders uh, face. I, I'm curious, I would like to talk a whole nother hour on that topic alone, but I think I'll move on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a fascinating. 
I feel like if I if I open that can, I'm gonna we're gonna be on there for a long time. So I'll I'll move on from that. But I I appreciate that share. I, I'm curious, like how often do you feel a sense of accomplishment at the end of your day? Um, at the end of my day, I'd say if it's a good week, it'll be once a week. And why? Like what what determine? Because I know there's an endless to-do list. But yeah. What determines if you feel a sense of, I guess, joy slash accomplishment at the end of your day? I think it's really outcome-based. Like, I, I find it very difficult to, to feel a sense of accomplishment based on output as opposed to outcome. Um, and it's just difficult to achieve outcomes on a daily basis. Uh, like, projects don't complete themselves in, in a day. Uh, but it's the, it's about perspective. Like we have other team members that I'm sure feel you know much uh, much more accomplished. Um, but I guess you get to sort of a, a stage I don't know in life or you know in your first sort of founder journey where uh, the simple metrics uh, you sort of start realizing that they're false indicators of success. Uh, so. Let's say someone will say, yeah, we're on track for, you know, growth of whatever X percent this month. In your mind, well, we're also on track for the client. You know what I mean? Like, what does on track mean? Uh, So there's all these different false indicators. And I think the world just becomes so volatile and the rate of change is just very fast that personally, you know, and I don't know how you feel about that. I, I, I sense of accomplishment. I really derive primarily from outcomes that are concrete as opposed to, to, you know, traction towards a goal. I do too, but I don't really want to because there's such, there's a lot that is outside of my control. I'm trying to find peace with doing my very best. Also not like subjectively, like, I mean, my wife and I get along very, very well, but occasionally there, we have disagreements or that, you know, my kids are teenagers and they're struggling with something. It's like my best day by day changes. And I'm trying to find a sense of contentment with that. And the reason why is because I recognize to, to see the value of compounding, you have to play the long game. You have to run the marathon. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned your wife and I was thinking of my wife while answering this question because often she, she says, they know, you don't seem happy, you know, and then like one day I'll be very happy. So she's like, I'd like to see you happy more consistently. <laughs> uh, I'm like, well... I'd like that too, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. And 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 I remember a team member, uh, you know, telling me, you know, uh, it's not a it's not a sprint; it's a marathon. Uh, so you have to think of it that way. And you know, as a founder, you just I guess the stakes are also very high. So you're always thinking to yourself, what is the va-? often I think to myself, what is the value of a day, like in 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 dollar terms and uh, and even in other terms. So when you think to yourself, okay, whatever, we spent 50K today. So if you try to match that against, you know, your outcomes, you're like, what did you, did you accomplish stuff worth of 100K? If you did, then it's awesome. But if you accomplish yeah. stuff worth of 30, it means you just lost 20K today. So uh, so I guess it's difficult, really, if you try to quantify it. It's uh, it's very difficult to achieve on a short interval. You, you have to look at it on a longer-term basis. Yeah, do you feel like you're running the marathon versus a sprint? I feel like I'm running five different sprints concurrently <laughs> at any given point. <laughs> Has that been true since you were 18 or is that, does that ebb and flow? Like where it's a series it ebbs, of sprints? It ebbs and flows, but it ebbs and flows in terms of the number of sprints, not the concept. 
Like it goes from like two sprints to 20 sprints, but it's always like parallel sprints. <laughs> you know, my, my co-founder and I had a sync yesterday and we were talking about like our own challenges. And like, I think we're both a little bit off. Like I, I honestly may even be somewhere on the Asperger's spectrum. <laughs> it's like, and, and probably David is too, but like, yeah. we were joking and I was like, you've got to be a little crazy to 100%. do this, you know, because like the, the potential negative outcome is, or the risk of negative outcome is, is high. Yeah. I don't know. There's just got to be something a little bit different about entrepreneurs. 100%. And, and that's, that's the weird part. And, you know, in explaining it to say, you know, your, your, your wife, it's so difficult, really. And I think, like, honestly, wives don't get enough credit in startup world. Um, <laughs> you know, they are the backbones, sort of, it's sort of wives followed by, you know, all the rest. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we had a webinar, I remember a few months ago, the author of this book called Why Startups Fail. Uh, so, so we hosted him on the webinar. We were talking about statistics, right? You know, the failure rates and so forth. And like you said, like the odds are against you. Uh, and depending on, you know, the audacity of sort of your, your idea, your concept, you definitely have to be a little bit, I don't want to say obnoxious, but arrogant to, to believe that you're going to beat the odds and you're going to do what other things, other people weren't able to do and so forth. So across yeah. the board, you can't be 100% normal and keep on going at it. Um, when you're a founder and you need, and you know your bank account, you know doesn't have enough money for your payroll two weeks down the line, but you're still hiring people. Like that's unusual behavior, right? But you know people do these things, and ultimately they become success stories, or abnormal behavior rather. So you have to be a bit abnormal, and uh, and I think you have to recognize that you are, but uh, but not be arrogant about it. <laughs> it's such a weird like recipe of traits that are needed it is super weird and yeah. honestly do you ever think about the concept itself of startups like because in itself it's weird like what's wrong with profitable family-owned businesses growing at decent rates growing whatever 20 percent a year 10 percent a year like why is it that those are out of fashion i don't know yeah it's like and so many people have this view of entrepreneurship like it's sexy it's like it's freaking hard. Like, yeah. you know, like the reason entrepreneurs can earn an endless potential of, of, of money is because they add value at a larger and larger scale and bear responsibility. Like I left the office on Friday. One of my main problems is I internalize the responsibility to employ my team. Like our mission is to, to create 10,000 highly autonomous remote jobs in 10 years. Like I'm serious about that, but there are days where I feel like something is shaky with a client or whatever, where I bear that responsibility. And I know it's not just completely up to me, but it's hard, man. Like it's, it's yeah. a weight to bear. It is. But, but to your point, I think that it's wise to define goals and expectations because there's absolutely nothing wrong with a, a small family business that grows 10 or 20% year over year. And honestly, that's a better fit for a lot of people. I don't think we should overly glamorize you know, exactly. large funded startups versus like, I, who, gosh, I wish I could attribute this properly. Oh, darn. Who was it? I listened to a podcast where somebody said, look, I don't think that Elon Musk is working any harder than the, the restaurant here that owns three local <laughs> restaurants, probably maybe even the opposite. Yeah. You know, very true. It's very true. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that book, I mean, they were making a case actually for the fact that, you know, VC funded startups have a much higher failure rate than non VC funded startups. Um, 
And yet, yeah, it's the recipe that sort of everyone's going after now. And uh, yeah, that in itself, you know, oftentimes I look back and I and I question um, whether that is the right recipe one should continue pursuing. Well, some businesses just need that. Like I think of network effect businesses. Yeah. There's no way that they could exist apart from significant funding. Yeah. Yeah, you know? that's a whole other topic, though, maybe for, for another session. But I have major issues with, you know, business models that have no path to profitability, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, or at least like an obscure sort of 30-year path. Like, what the hell? You know, I don't think that's cool. And I think that's a, that's a dangerous, uh, you know, path to, 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 to pursue. 100% with you. Well, dang, I, this, our time has flown by. Yeah. I, I do want to end with one more question, and it, sure. it can be quick. But I'm curious, in all of your experience, what advice you would give to yourself if you went back and talked to yourself and picked the time frame 10 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, what you would say? If I could pick 20 years ago, um, I would probably have told myself, follow a traditional college path, um, meaning like don't start working in high school, enjoy yourself, have fun, uh, and then work will, will happen when you graduate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not too late, you know. You can you can make it up. <laughs> take, take a little sabbatical, take a little break, and go on vacation with your wife. Take my two daughters and go. <laughs> that'd be nice. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. You've been very That's gracious. It's been a, a fun conversation. Um, we will have links to to Nextford as well as to your LinkedIn on our landing page. Awesome. Uh, the The university website is Nextford n e x f o r d dot org. If you want to check it out, what's the best way for people to to get in touch with you, say hello, or certainly if they're interested in learning more about the university. I guess LinkedIn. Yeah, Perfect. probably the easiest. Okay, sounds good. Well, thanks again for your time, Fadal. Appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jim.